welcome to Florida Politics Reviewed. I'm your host, Nora O'Neill. This is a podcast out of Florida Political Review, Florida's preeminent student political journal. For more in-depth coverage of Florida politics, visit our website, floridapoliticalreview.com, and follow us on Twitter at FLA Review. On today's episode... Florida will experience significant budget cuts in the upcoming fiscal years as a result of COVID-19. What will this look like? We will also discuss how Florida renters faced the second highest risk of eviction in the country at the end of 2020. Then, Florida Republican lawmakers respond to rumors that the Biden administration is currently investigating the possibility of domestic travel restrictions in the state. Lastly, Congressman Matt Gates took to Twitter to oppose a new conservative political action committee. We'll get into why on this episode of Florida Politics Reviewed. It is now evident that Florida will experience significant budget cuts in the upcoming fiscal years due to the decrease in state tax revenues as a result of COVID-19. Economists predict a $3.3 billion general state revenue reduction. I'm here with an FBR writer. Thank you for being here today. Of course, of course. My name is Mikhail Mikhailov, also known as Misha, also known as Good Mishka, and it is a pleasure to be here. So the Florida legislator's last encounter with budget materials was all the way back in March, which only factored in the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. You wrote that since then, Florida's economy has been hit hard as its major economic indicators and businesses report millions of dollars in loss and high levels of unemployment. What did House Budget Chair Jay Trumbull have to say about this? I believe his direct words were, we will be squeezing blood out of turnips, okay? But on a more analytical level, uh, Trumbull heavily pushed the idea that a $92 billion spending plan for the upcoming year is going to be rough for Florida residents. Now, it is important to note that some of the largest cuts that were indicated will be education followed by federal and state health care programs which I find extremely interesting because one would assume that during a pandemic or a crisis of this sort, the government will prioritize health and education programs. But at the moment, it almost seems like those are taking the most heavy hits. Mm -hmm. So Florida education officials state that many school districts in Florida are now facing the awful aftermath of these serious budget cuts. Tell me about the impact this has had on schools. Okay, well, schools is a lot to unpack because a myriad amount of schools in Florida have undergone a short-term cash crisis in which school expenses significantly exceed school revenues. And the solution, solution in air quotes, might I add, is downsizing. For example, the Hillsborough County School Board, one of the United States' top 10 largest school districts, has proposed many various options for downsizing in order to address this issue. Experts project that many teachers may face unpaid work days and schools will experience closures. The county may even institute zoning changes to better distribute student enrollments. I think it is interesting to ask the question of why school expenses are exceeding school revenues to such a, to such a great extent. Mm-hmm. My prediction based on my research is that the transition from in-person classes to virtual classes and then back to in-person classes is the reason for such cases. The amount of time and energy spent on educating teachers on using online resources, then paying those resources directly. And then we haven't even touched based on the how difficult it might be to have half a class online and half a class in person. And I'll add on top of that, the, the rates of enrollment in Florida public schools are at an all-time low since the beginning of 2020. For now, the, uh, the emergency order by the Florida Department of Education assures that there will be no additional intentional budget cuts based solely on enrollment rates. However, it's important to note that 
uh, that it does not secure funding for future semesters. Mm -hmm. Now, before we move on, before we move on, I've discussed with you the Florida public schools, but it's, it's key to mention Florida universities. Some Florida universities approved millions of dollars in budget cuts in preparation for the next legislative session. Now, with hindsight, hear me out, hear me out. It is clear to me that all of the, this mess that I have, uh, have just mentioned in regards to Florida education, all of this mess is a catalyst for the Florida Bright Futures Scholarship Bill that was only recently stalled due to overwhelming student outrage. I'm certain, I'm certain a large portion of people have been informed by social media about this, but the government, uh, but to clear it up, the government wanted to decrease student financial aid towards majors that seemed, de or they deemed were unimportant or mm -hmm. irrelevant to the success of American economy or society, which if that doesn't baffle you, I don't know what will. <laughs> yeah, and so how is this impacting Medicaid? Ah, well, actually, Medicaid is also on the chopping block and made budget reductions. And like I said before, if, if, if that doesn't baffle you, I don't know what is, this will definitely baffle you because um, my resources indicate and project dependency and enrollment in Medicaid to be rising extensively. And let me add this piece of information to that boiling hot pot. Experts believe that with, without adequate federal aid, Florida may enact serious health care and Medicaid cuts that could jeopardize many people's access to coverage in the middle of a pandemic. Imagine that. Okay. Okay. States analysts predict the cost of Medicaid to skyrocket as anticipated tax collections uh, sharply decrease due to the economic fallout. This means that the health coverage that many low-income Florida residents rely on will demand another $1.2 billion in state taxpayer money next year. Mm -hmm. You wrote that while budget cuts have the potential to be detrimental for Florida's residents, there are still reasons to have hope for the state's long-term economic outlook despite the continued pandemic. What are these reasons? Yes, yes, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, ladies and gentlemen. Based on what I researched, I found that Florida had a minor recovery period when the projected shortage for the current fiscal year decreased from a whopping $5.4 billion gap projected all the way back in August to a smaller $3.3 billion gap projected more recently. Mm -hmm. And let me say, the tourist industry in Florida is projected to get back on its feet midway through 2021 based on positive trends in employee retention, average hotel occupancy rate, and tourism profits. And let me end off with a good note, okay, a hopeful note. It is estimated that the number of state visitors will return to pre-pandemic numbers by 2022. That's great news. Thank you so much for being here today. Of course, of course, it's my pleasure. Every one in three American households is facing imminent eviction or foreclosure. Florida renters face the second highest risk of eviction in the country at the end of 2020, with 15.6% of renters immediately vulnerable. The long-term outlook is even more insecure as a lack of comprehensive state policy leaves Floridians dependent on federal relief while local economies continue to struggle. I'm here with FPR writer Andrew Taramikin. Thank you for being here, Andrew. Of course. Thanks for having me. President Joe Biden recently extended the federal eviction moratorium to March 31st, but we know that Florida renters are at a high risk for eviction. Why? Uh, so first and foremost, there's, there isn't a statewide moratorium at the moment. We had one in Florida, but Governor DeSantis has argued that because there's a federal level rule in place that the state doesn't have to be adding on to that. However, the Biden moratorium or the CDC moratorium is, it, it's patchworky. Um, there are holes here and there, you know, 
uh, landlords can evict for reasons other than non-payment. They could refuse to renew leases. Um, and what's more is judges in some jurisdictions aren't necessarily recognizing the moratorium. Landlords or renters may not even know the moratorium exists. And what's more is there are specific standards that a renter has to meet before it even applies. So they have to prove that they've been seeking government assistance. Um, they have to bring a signed copy of the moratorium to their landlord. Um, so there's a lot of rules and a lot of layers to it that renters either may not know how to protect themselves from or may not necessarily qualify for protection or the landlord may be able to find a way around it. Mm -hmm. In your story, you wrote that this housing crisis isn't necessarily a surprise. Can you explain why that is? It's not really a surprise because it's not really new. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the pandemic and the recession that it induced added a whole new layer of uncertainty to the state and national and global economies. Um, but housing in Florida has been messy for a long time. Um, according to the GAP housing report published by the National Low Income Housing Coalition, Florida has for the last several years been one of the hardest states to find affordable housing, especially for extremely low income renters. Uh, those who do have housing are cost burdened or extremely cost burdened. Um, so it's been going like this for a while in their 2000. 20 report, which was published, I believe, less than a week before the first lockdown started to be ordered. Um, Florida was, I believe, tied for third uh, in the most severe crisis in the country. The city of Orlando, my hometown, uh, was sixth out of all metropolitans in the country. Um, the year before that, Orlando was number one. Tampa Clearwater was number nine. Um, and Florida was, again, in a really high position alongside states like California and Nevada uh, for having one of the worst affordable housing crises in the nation. So when the economy kind of collapsed along with the pandemic, uh, it was really just a continuation of something that's been going on in this state for years already. Mm -hmm. And so what's next? What should be done in both the short and long term to combat this crisis? So that's definitely a tricky question. Um, because obviously it's been a problem for a while. Um, Florida was starting to get some bipartisan agreement that, you know, something has to be done uh, from Democrats and Republicans alike. For the first time in a long time, Governor DeSantis's uh, original 2020 budget prior to the pandemic fully funded the state's affordable housing program with funds from the Sadowski Housing Trust. Uh, typically, a lot of money from that fund is moved into general revenue. But this year, the state or this past year, the state was planning on using all of it. Then COVID came, budget cuts came, a majority of the budget was slashed, but it was made up with federal CARES Act money, uh, which DeSantis said was a good thing. And it was and it's a victory for housing advocates to have that funding. Um, but it's going to take more than just kind of patchwork federal relief. It's going to take more than stimulus. Um, so there's a number of solutions that advocates have touted. Um, one that I talked about in my most recent article with the Political Review is the idea of ending exclusionary zoning. Um, zoning ordinances obviously regulate, you know, what kind of properties can be built where, um, minimum lot sizes, uh, mandatory parking lots, uh, excessive variance fees, all these things that artificially drive up the cost of properties. Advocates say getting rid of some of those rules um, would make it easier to build affordable housing and would bring property values back down to a level where people can actually afford to live there. Mm -hmm. um, and what's really interesting about 
about zoning reform is that it's real it just doesn't follow partisan lines as an issue at all it has opponents and proponents on both sides um and it's a pro-business solution obviously it's a market reform so in a like Florida that's known for kind of its safe air solutions to things, it really stands out as, you know, at least to me as something that I could really see the state of Florida doing. Um, obviously, you know, there's so much going on uh, and the state was starting to approach housing reform. So I really do think that as we rebuild and recover from this pandemic, affordable housing is going to be a priority for policymakers. Mm-hmm. You can find Andrew on Twitter at Andrew Taramikin. Thanks for talking to me today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for what you're doing here. Florida is estimated to have the highest percentage of UK variant COVID-19 cases with 30%. The question remains whether the speed of the vaccines will outpace the spread of these new variants. In the meantime, there have been rumors that the Biden administration is currently investigating the possibility of domestic travel restrictions, specifically on Florida. I'm here with FPR writer Cayman Forbes. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So the Biden administration has recently said that they are not planning on implementing these travel restrictions after Republican lawmakers voiced their concerns. What did Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have to say about these rumors? So basically, Ron DeSantis complained that these rumors or um, regulations would not be based in science. And he kind of talked about how... Florida had been doing really well regarding the virus. Um, He listed a bunch of statistics. Um, But concerning these rumors and regulations that the Biden administration has come out with, basically that was regarding the UK variant. And DeSantis' concerns were mostly about the original variant. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they kind of were talking about two separate things there. Mm -hmm. And what about Florida Senator Marco Rubio? Well, when Rubio heard these concerns, he kind of attacked... um, the Biden administration's COVID response in general um, and talked about how these regulations would impact the Florida economy, um, specifically the influx of snowbirds in the winter season, which are people that move from up north to Florida or southern areas um, for the warm weather. Mm -hmm. Um, And he kind of said that we needed to focus on vaccine distribution, which there are a bunch of different statistics for that, but that was his main concern. The Biden administration has openly denied the reports of these restrictions. However, a White House spokesperson has stated that the administration is continuing to discuss other travel recommendations. What do you make of this? Well, I think we've seen that the Biden administration has a very different response to the COVID-19 pandemic and regulations, even though that they're encountering the end hopefully, of this um, pandemic. But we've already heard a promise that they want around 100 million vaccine shots in arms within the first 100 days. And there already has been an improvement in distribution already. So with them saying that they want to continue to discuss these, I think we can expect more aggressive actions. Um, They've already required masks on federal property and um, a negative test result for international travel. And so I think the Biden administration will just keep that open, an open option just in case, because they will attack this virus um, more aggressively than in the past. Mm-hmm. You can follow Cayman on Twitter at Cayman underscore Forbes. Thanks again for speaking to me. No problem.
Florida Congressman Matt Gates took to Twitter to oppose fellow Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger and Kinzinger's new political action committee that seeks to combat devotion to former President Donald Trump within the Republican Party. I'm here with FPR writer Lillian Karens. Thank you for being here, Lily. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about this new PAC. So it started as just a reaction to the division within the Republican Party, what he saw as um, pretty much Trumpism, uh, which is a word that's thrown around quite a bit nowadays, um, and which I hesitate to use considering how undefined it is, similar to how selfie was before it was in Merriam-Webster. Uh, but uh, basically, Kinzinger is a another representative in the House of Representatives from Illinois, uh, one of the last Republicans from Northern Illinois still in the House. Um, but yes, so the PAC is, as of right now, it's just a video. It's a seven-minute video, very much like a political six-minute, I believe, actually. Um, very much like a political ad. And it's talking about how he wants to restore the party back to its original views, which is that it's based off of personal principles rather than um, the politics of one man or a cult of personality, specifically around Trump, which he very obviously in a Washington Post interview um, targeted uh, Matt Gates and um, Representative uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia as being two of those people who follow the Trump, the Trump politics, the politics of Trump. Yeah, so Gates definitely has a reputation of being a strong supporter of Trump. What exactly did he say on Twitter about this pack? So uh, basically, he said um, that Kinzinger needs PACs to win in elections, whereas Matt Gates doesn't. On Twitter, in about five simple sentences, Matt Gates said, Kins- uh, Adam is a wonderful patriot who served in the military. He, he, was, he is currently in the Air Force National Guard uh, and was a member of like active duty uh, Air Force. He will always be thankful for Kinzinger's service in the military uh, and that Adam is a patriot from Northern, Northern Florida as well, uh, who now lives in Illinois. Uh, but he needs PACs, political action committees, to win any election, Mm -hmm. considering that he is not now following the Republican Party. That's a bit of reading between the lines, but... Yeah. um, Yeah. And Matt Gaetz said, I don't need PACs to win. Bring it on. Uh, Referencing his grassroots devotion, even though he represents... um, District 1 in Florida, which is statistically the most conservative uh, district in Florida and one of the most conservative districts in the entire nation. 
Let's talk a little bit about the name Country First. You write in your article that this is worded very similarly to the America First slogan used by Trump and his supporters. What do you think is the significance of this? Well, they're both very similar as far as how they vote in in the House. Uh, they are both staunch conservatives. Uh, they are not... They are pro-life, they are pro-guns, you know, they have very similar views under the Republican Party platform. It's how they approach politics that's different. So the name Country First and the name America First is kind of like, they both support the same ideas, the same ideology, but they are completely different in their what they believe is the correct course of action in making those kind of policies. Uh, you know, Matt Gates, he is very aligned with Trump as as far as you know social media, as far as um, using personality politics to get the word across. Whereas Kinzinger is like, let the people vote according to how they think the government should run. Um, but their politics are the same. Mm-hmm. Well, not the same. Not I shouldn't say that. But they are very similar. Mm-hmm. And the name kind of reflects that. And I don't know if that was as intentional or as almost poetic as it is, but uh, I think it's interesting. Um, All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to me, Lillian. Of course. That's it for the show today. Again, be sure to check out our website, floridapoliticalreview.com, and you can find me on Twitter at N-O-R O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in to Florida Politics Reviewed.